0: This podcast contains explicit language.
1: So that happened. This week, Democratic candidates Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton took to the debate stage in Brooklyn in what might be the final debate of the Democratic primary. The setting is key. New York state has loomed as a delegate heavy prize to the two candidates, both of whom claim the state as their own turf. We will deliver a full after-action report of the proceedings. Meanwhile, as usual, we are bringing you the best in bank dorkery. We're joined today by progressive Democrat and U.S. House of Representatives candidate Zephyr Teachup, who's channeling FDR with her plan to break up big cable monopolies. And speaking of breaking things up... Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform is here to discuss the frightening new announcement from the Federal Reserve that five, count them, five U.S. banks are now officially too big to fail. Dum, dum, dum. And finally, in previous podcasts, Wisconsin representative and friend of the show, Reed Ribble, has announced that he'll be retiring after this term. But before he goes, he wants to sidle up to the famous third rail of American politics one last time and drop a Social Security reform bill. He's here to detail his plan that, in ribalesque fashion, he's hoping everyone might be able to get behind. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. And here's what happened first. Hello, America and the world. Allow me to reintroduce myself. I am Jason Lincolns, the editor of Eat the Press, and uh, longtime podcast jockey on this thing called life. Joining me today to talk about all manner of political nonsense is our good friend, Zach Carter. Oh,
2: man, this is going to be huge.
1: Best known as the Carter from Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine.
2: Yeah, I get that a lot.
1: Yeah, I bet you do. And... (laughs) And and also here with us in Mirth is the editor of the morning email, Lauren Weber. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about the Democratic debate. And I just want to start, Lauren. Yes, you look you look lovely today.
3: Oh, well, this is sexist. This is, this is nice. You're of doing. To say. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great.
1: I wanted to just sort of engage you right off the bat because uh-huh. I know that after the debate we watched, Zach Carter is going to want to go.
3: All the fucking
1: So tonight
3: I I can't even believe it's in contained.
1: I know he's like he's like he he's he's playing it off so casual right now. I know Mm. you were just hopping, hopping, hopping at the first half hour of the debate and then a lot afterwards. But tonight in Brooklyn, New York Home of emergency locksmiths that scam you, <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> which is really the biggest takeaway from this. Just across podcast. the river from so we, a
2: whole bunch of bankers that scam you.
1: Yeah, it was an important issue that never came up in
3: tonight's nice debate. The rent is too damn high.
1: <clears throat> Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton met in battle, and good God, it got it escalated quickly. I
3: just, I kind of wish they'd all been like this. It would have been a lot more entertaining for. the I kind of wish they'd these. all
1: not been broadcast on a weekend or. On a holiday, Hitting. or from the inside of an obscure Icelandic volcano,
3: or that this race hadn't escalated to like now, like yeah. you know why are the gloves? Only well, look, up now? look,
2: let's, let's Bernie Sanders had a clear uh, electoral strategy early on, which was to tell people how great democratic socialism was, yeah, and right. not challenge Hillary Clinton, and then he started doing well. If he had challenged Hillary Clinton earlier, we could have had a very serious debate of ideas in the Democratic Party, and also a very serious debate over the legacy of the Clinton administration. Instead of, "Hey guys, Denmark's like kind of cool," which is what which we is did literally, actually, for, what was said for the first couple months.
1: Also I believe you also said Sweden was great. I it was Just want to say that, point can... that out. Sweden, great I nation.
2: I also want to point out Denmark and Sweden are pretty great. And there's also this weird movement on the libertarian right to say that Denmark and Sweden are libertarian and utopia. So, like, I'm like, cool. I'm, I'm with you guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, but we're 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 uh, tonight. It it seemed like. They just came ready to throw bricks at one another because that's what happened. Yeah,
2: it was pretty violent, uh, rhetorically speaking, um, and and in every sense. And weirdly, to me, I, I felt like they there was this inversion of the traditional strengths. I mean, the first part of the debate was clearly designed by CNN to be a part that was anti-Clinton, where they were talking about Wall Street and look that's never going to do great for clinton but i felt like sanders just missed opportunity after opportunity to hit her on this and she ended up surviving that kind of as a win just because he he flubbed a whole lot of stuff and then when they shifted to palestine and israel later in later in the debate sanders actually looked good on foreign policy and clinton looked kind of kind of weaselly and waffly i I thought he won the Israel-Palestine st- side of the debate, and she won the Wall Street side, and I felt weird about that.
3: I don't necessarily think she walked away scot-free on the Wall Street side. I mean, that was a pretty brutal release. Your Goldman Sachs speeches, like, I thought so know, too. Yeah. Drumming by d- by Dana and crew. I mean, I I think that's gonna be talked about for a little. Well, bit.
1: one of the reasons one of the reasons so hard for her is that she opted to not answer the question.
3: And kept not answer.
1: I mean, clearly, that was the strategy. She's
3: Sorry. not going to release them. That's clearly the decisions that's been made. So she had to keep going back and doubling, tripling down on that. Her choice. fallback
1: response on that is that she's held to a different standard than everybody else. But I mean, that's still not answering the question. Well, but
2: also gave Bernie— gave noteworthy
1: speeches to a noteworthy bank and received noteworthy sums of money.
2: And Bernie said straight, straight up, I'll, I'll release all my, all the transcripts of my speeches to Wall Street. Here they are. I thought that are. was hilarious.
3: Yeah, I thought that was one of his best lines of well, the night. This, and this is weird, okay, because,
2: so look, I, you know, I was pretty hard on the Sanders campaign tonight for being unprepared for this section of the debate. Um, but— Right there, I mean Sanders has made that argument before. Like the fact that that Clinton wasn't prepared for that, I think, is is actually like a, a pretty clear, like prep judgment kind of error. The same I way I think she that, was
3: prepared for it. I don't think she expected CNN to pile onto her like that.
2: Mm, well, but I he, think she
3: was prepared. She wasn't gonna release, they'd already decided. But you
2: guys have got to admit that when Bernie Sanders was asked, is there name one policy on which Hillary Clinton has vacillated, waffled, sold out to Wall Street. Because yeah, that of these was donations. a weak answer. He had nothing, and, and he should have had at least one thing
3: because that was really weak. Because you should have had that as a follow up for everything you're going to attack. On.
2: Because Elizabeth Warren has been has been criticizing Hillary Clinton's vote on the bankruptcy bill for like ten years now. I mean, Hillary Clinton, when she was in the White House, she opposed this bill, which took money from essentially broke people and gave it to credit card companies. And then when she went to the Senate, she supported it. It's pretty pretty straightforward answer. The fact that he hasn't been prepped on this when it's – I mean, I, I've i have defended him on on the Too Big to Fail stuff in the New York Daily News interview. I think that, that people who are saying he didn't know what he was talking about there are, are totally wrong.
1: I think they're being very disingenuous, and I think the real crime of that interview is that the New York Daily News editors didn't seem to know how either the Dodd-Frank right. law worked or what the Federal Reserve did.
2: He fundamentally understands Too Big to Fail. Uh, it's not clear to me that he fundamentally understands Hillary Clinton's record on Wall Street. Uh, and that wasn't prepped on it. And and, you know, it's it's freaking April. OK, this has come up multiple times at debates before. And I think I think Bernie supporters have got to ask themselves some pretty serious questions about competency when he doesn't have that ready on his core issue.
0: Even
1: that's a big, fair point, even big picture. I mean, one of the things that I think that Sanders could have d- done a better job pointing out is that when Hillary Clinton sort of conceptualizes the whole idea of being corrupted by money, she reduces it to, well, is there a clear example of quid pro quo bribery? Now we've all read our Zephyr Teachout and her history of corruption. We know that that is this point at which uh, the entire conversation about corruption is degenerated to that ne- right. that we've lost the definition of corruption as anything that creates an opportunity or an insinuating event, uh, and that corruption is a lot more than you know, Re- Representative William Jefferson getting caught with, you know, packets of money in his freezer.
2: Right, right. It, it well, influences the way you think about the world and who your friends are and things like that. She
3: also flipped the script on him and, and brought that up, in a sense, in the gun control debate, you know, with she, the NRA. I mean, that's... She clearly came prepared with examples.
2: No pun intended, but she burned him on that.
1: Oh! Yeah, I
3: mean, I, okay. that was good, Zach. Really, you should take <laughs> that laugh farm to the bank.
1: There, uh... <laughs> I Speaking mean, of banks, Lauren, where did you used to work? <laughs> I remember you saying during that part of the debate. Now we're going to talk. We're talking specifically <laughs> about uh, Sanders' uh, response on on guns, which has been an issue where he has just floundered about on uh, because uh, because he he has not voted. In the orthodox democratic way on guns throughout his career,
2: he's voted wrong on guns. Let's yeah. let's just let's just say it. He, he's voted wrong on guns and, for decades.
1: And you found it interesting, and I found it interesting that you made this observation that uh, that really what Sanders just needs to do there is say I was wrong,
3: and that would just be so much easier than this current tact that we're taking. It would just be. I feel like people also respect it. Like, look, I, I'm coming out. I'm saying it's wrong.
2: I was from Vermont. It was a rural state. It was a bad vote. It's not that hard. Just say that, move on, but instead he just keeps like vacillating on this and oh and he looks just like Hillary Clinton talking about her Wall Street speeches. and frankly, guns are a big deal, especially in a Democratic Party primary
1: but in a Democratic party general election, what's interesting is that Sanders issue is probably the one that might win you more votes in uh, western states than Hillary Clinton's. That's you sad. know the the thing about the thing you have to remember about the, now that Democrats are bringing back. The issue of gun control or gun safety, whatever you want to call it, is that the moment you start talking about that, you start putting a ceiling on the number of people who come out to vote for you in Colorado, in uh, Wyoming, in uh, New Mexico, in Nevada. Uh, For a long time, that's why uh, Democrats were unable to turn out the votes of environmentalists in those Western states. That would have naturally gravitated toward toward those environmental policies. It was because they felt that the Democrats were a bunch of gun grabbers, mm-hmm. and uh, the issue went away for quite some time until these mass shootings brought it back. Uh, and now I think that we're I think it's becoming a really interesting issue for Democrats to keep talking about when there's you know I think some some uh, evidence that it could hurt them in places like colorado. Well look,
2: look here. We we got to wrap this pretty soon, but what what who who do you guys think won tonight, Lauren?
3: I mean, I uh, I I don't want to give the debate to Bernie because I feel like he missed some easy opportunities, but I also feel like he landed some punches that he hasn't in the past.
1: You know, you know who Bernie, Sa- Bernie Sanders was Kobe Bryant tonight?
3: I don't think he put up sixty points in he the final did, game of he his career. He definitely put
1: up sixty mm. points, but he also—Are
3: you saying this is the final game of his career? It,
1: no, I'm not. Okay.
3: Are I'm, you saying this is it for pro, Bernie well, Sanders? Pro,
1: probably the final debate why of his career. Let's be honest.
3: Why don't, why don't, are you taking this metaphor to its fullest extent, Jason? I'm,
1: I'm surprised you're interrogating my metaphor this deeply. I
3: am. Okay. I am.
1: <laughs> I am saying. I'm saying that it, he scored points, but it took him a lot of shots to get there. Okay, and, that's um, fair. And that's I think fair. that he was more "quote unquote" correct on a lot of the issues that he spoke about tonight. But I think that Hillary Clinton, just on style and uh, and on just sort of like, mm, I don't know, just like kind of... Persevered. She kind of had her feet under her tonight, uh, won out the debate on style points. Maybe not on substance, but definitely on style points. I
2: mean, look, I pretty much always give them to Bernie... Let's be honest.
1: Yep, you're in the tank.
2: But uh, no, I'm not in the tank. Uh, but, uh, I
1: know. I'm just kidding.
2: But but I I mean I I just find his economic message more compelling. And as someone who like specializes in economic policy, I mean he clearly he 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 has he has figured out the way to burrow straight into your brain if that's your thing.
1: But do you find his economic message compelling, or do you just find the economic message compelling?
2: The and. Moreover, although he does he does do a, a pretty good job delivering this, um, but tonight I, d- I didn't actually think he was good at that. I thought he was bad at that, and I thought he was surprisingly good at a foreign policy thing, um, which he usually is terrible at. So I am going to call this one a draw. Uh, and I
3: would say that's where I lean.
2: And and say I I don't, I don't think anybody really pulled ahead. And I think but the punches New- were landed. And I think the New York primary is going to be really interesting on Tuesday.
1: That's right. A lot of delegates at stake in the New York primary, and uh, Bernie Sanders win in New York, that would be. We'd have to start talking about it being a tide turner. I know we've kind of like drifted away from talking about Bernie's winning streak as something that is significant in the the sense that he could win the primary, but but uh, a New York win for Bernie Sanders would we'd have to start talking about being a, a tide turner in the race. Anyway, unlikely. Still we'll see what happens. Still unlikely, but the week is young. All right, Zach Carter, Lauren Weber, thanks for being here to talk about the debate. Stick around, everyone. We have a really fantastic show, so I know you can't wait to hear the rest of it. We'll be right back.
2: And we're back. I'm Zach Carter here with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And a very special guest who loyal listeners will have heard before, Zephyr Teachout.
5: Hi. I'm so excited to be back on the show.
2: So Zephyr is running for Congress in the Hudson Valley District of New York, uh, probably best known for her gubernatorial run against Andrew Cuomo a couple of years back. Um, But she's got a new plan that targets big cable monopolies. Uh, To be clear, one of those owns the Huffington Post, which, uh, you know, we work for, but uh, Zephyr, can you tell us about your plan?
5: It's not personal. It's not personal. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we take no offense.
5: Here's here's two things I want to talk about. One is the big plan, and the second is how we get there. So, so I take my inspiration, as many people do, from um, uh, from FDR. Um, you know, I just like really see what he was able to do and create, uh, and how he was able to create a middle-class and support a middle-class economy that really lasted for for decades. And one of the key parts of FDR's agenda was rural electrification. The REA, you, you guys don't remember that, certainly. I don't remember it, but you might have heard of it. The basic idea was um, every farmer needs electricity, you know, every... Seems every fair. last g- garage needs electricity. We're going to figure out by hook or by crook. And it lit up the country. It changed uh, the uh, economy of the country, not just in installments, in, in the installations, but in actually creating the possibility for um, economic growth everywhere. Well, I think we need REA for the 21st century. Rural Electrification Act of the 21st century is broadband. Every farmhouse, every garage, every home, um, every business needs high-speed, competitive, affordable broadband. But
2: Zephyr, here's the thing. Uh, You know, I have high-speed broadband at my house. I live in Washington, D.C. And just a couple weeks ago, I got really mad at my provider because it went out. And I think most people who have access to uh, high-speed broadband have serious complaints about their service at least once a year, if not more often. So, so what, what can be done about that?
5: The, the principle isn't the end, but I've got to tell you, in the, in the Hudson Valley, the Catskills, just imagine really not having access to that. It's slow if it's, if it's there. I was talking to a woman this morning out at the Verizon strike, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, who said I would never move to where I live now? Um, if I had to choose again, because um, because without broadband, I can't uh, I can't have my grandchildren over to do their homework. Um, it really cuts you out of the modern economy. And when you look at uh, the map of inequality, like where where there's huge pockets of poverty, failure of access to broadband is key. Now the question is, how do we get there? And I think one of the ways we have to get there is more competition. Um, you know, there's this looming. Uh, Charter merger, uh, which I'm opposed to. This
2: is between Charter Communications and Time Warner Cable, t- two of the biggest cable companies in the country.
5: Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, y- you know, we're, we're sort of back at the same arguments that we were uh, a little over a year ago um, about why this is bad. And I, I still think it's bad, even though the characters have changed, um, that this would lead basically to a duopoly and you already don't have competition you were talking about your own experience at home something goes out well you know what what choice do you really have you don't have anybody else that you can turn to you don't you don't you aren't able to say hey if you don't provide service i'm going over across the street
7: no yeah even in a big city there's one company and it's huge news if another one even becomes available but then you're stuck with this box and all these wires that were already installed
5: we, we, we really have the, sort of the, the worst aspects of monopolization, and this is bad for customers. It's also terrible for workers, which is what we're seeing with Verizon right now, um, b- b- because basically the company can say to customers, as the company says to workers, take it or leave it. It doesn't have to provide good service. and doesn't have to take care of its workers. I really think that at the, at the broadest level, um, we've learned that concentration of economic power turns into concentration of political power. And there's no reason to move over to, uh, to more mergers in the cable scheme. Instead, we should be encouraging more competition, encouraging hyperlocal competition. Um, you know, here in New York and elsewhere, um, there are requirements, uh, a lot of these are state requirements that cable companies make the telephone companies available. Uh, For telephone poles available for competitors. And um, they're supposed to do it within 90 days. They often don't do it within 90 days. So, is
7: this like a a rural electrification in the sense that it's uh, geographic areas, or is it more about uh, people who are poor generally having less access to high speed internet?
5: The key principle is that it's universal. And so I'm using REA as a model because the, the sort of the beating heart of REA for FDR was everybody gets it. Um, it's every last farmhouse, but every last person too. So that it also applies to urban areas. Of course, my focus right now is so rural. Yeah. But the idea is that this is this is essential. You can't you can't be part of an economy without access to um, access to the internet. So our the- internet is slower. It's more expensive than in other countries. And you know even with this incredible American history of competition, we actually have less competition um
7: in this country than elsewhere now we we do have uh for telephones something called the lifeline program that that has been ridiculed by conservatives recently as the obama phone but the fcc is talking about extending this uh to help people poor people pay for internet access do you think that that is something that could help close the gap
5: there are incremental steps, but there's sort of deep solutions. I think the deep solutions are we got to, uh, one, um, not allow these companies to get so big, ensure there's competition, ensure there's competition at every level. I'm concerned about um, online uh, video distributors not having the bargaining power they need with the upcoming charter merger. Um, but I'm also concerned about uh, basically always being in a bigger situation where we're, we're – um, Uh, providing subsidies instead of providing a basic platform that can can work subsidies are i'm I'm not you know i'm not against um uh programs that certainly allow people to pay for for tough bills but that's a that's a a band-aid that's not a fundamental solution so
2: so what do we do then i mean you're, you're talking about the charter time warner uh bill but i mean we already have i mean charter and time warner are both really big so is comcast so is verizon um you know, if if we're talking about about restoring or, or enhancing competition in the space, it can't just be about limiting mergers going forward. There there, there ought to be something involving uh, the, the market as we see it now and making it more competitive. How how would you go about doing that?
5: Yeah. So one is, I think that we, there's room for some unwinding of of past mergers, and particularly mergers where uh, um, I almost think of Glass Steagall in the in the charter realm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is a great principle for a whole bunch of different areas that you, you don't want a platform to also own a media company because when the platform owns the media company then there's huge opportunity to shut out competitors
2: oh, i don't uh, don't have any idea what you're talking about there zephyr but uh, <laughs> but go on
5: so one is is sort of looking and a truly truly robust robust FCC and FTC and DOj really empowered with the with the FDR spirit would not just uh, look at mergers, but also look at where there's already too great, uh, too much concentration. And then there's a lot of sort of latent wonderful rules that we could, uh, with giving uh, local TSCs more authority, uh, public service commissions more authority, um, uh, could be used to pretty great effect. Again, I'm going to be a little um, uh, local here, but in New York, I was talking about make ready. Um, it's important for. The, the local telcos to be able to compete is they have access to the polls. we got to make sure that if some of the big companies are providing that access, which I, I keep hearing stories that they're not, um, that there are real penalties and not just a slap on the wrist. We're, we already know that investing in um, cable is hugely over time profitable in, in most areas. Um and it's really valuable for the community. There's much as a three-to-one return on the community. In many, many, many areas, you're not going to even need municipal broadband if you enforce um, existing principles in a serious way with serious penalties and allow for real competition.
2: Municipal broadband's cool, but we got to wrap. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Zephyr Teachout, uh, Democratic candidate for Congress in, I believe it's the 17th District of New York? 19th. 19th, my bad. All right, great Zep- to talk to you. <laughs> Good talking to you, Zephyr. And we'll be right back.
1: Hi, uh, we're back with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And joining us on the phone is friend of the podcast and Wisconsin representative Reed Ribble. Congressman Ribble.
6: Good to talk with you guys. Thanks for having me on.
1: It's great to have you on as well. I wanted to just start with a question. I know we're going to get to a lot of things today, but I wanted to start with a question that has kind of gripped the beltway scene uh, in recent weeks, and that is the fact that apparently – the Speaker of the House and your fellow Wisconsinite, Paul Ryan, is going to be the presidential nominee for the Republican Party. Is that correct?
6: Yay! The, the Speaker of the House has been very, very clear that he feels that whoever is going to be president, or, or at least the Republican nominee for president, ought to be actually running for president and campaigning for president. So the, the Speaker wants to be clear that he is not running for president, and I will, I will reinforce that with you today.
7: Okay. So what he's doing instead is passing a budget.
6: He's he, he's trying to get a budget passed through the House for sure, and as many Americans are aware, that the, inside the Republican conference in the House, there's a division between those that would call themselves deficit hawks and those that would call themselves defense hawks. And the defense hawks want to uh, spend a bit more money, and the deficit hawks want to spend a bit less money. And uh, as a result of that, we don't have the 218 votes necessarily to form necessary to formalize a budget. Although I would say that there was a budget agreement done last year, it was a two-year agreement that did pass the House and the Senate, and that will ultimately be the numbers we use.
7: Why do the Republicans need to agree with themselves? Why can't we have like a British-style Congress where you know you just get some Democrats? Like why are we operating under this Hastert rule, especially now?
6: Yeah, we're not we're not really operating under that rule, and so and and we haven't since we since I came to Congress. There've been a lot of votes that we've taken that didn't didn't comply with the Hastert rule. And for those that don't know what the Hastert rule, that is where the majority of the majority uh, make the determinations. But budgets have always been, since the beginning of the country to today, in essentially partisan documents. The majority writes the budget, and so they're going to write a budget uh, that most Republicans would support if they're in the majority. And when the Democrats were in the majority, they did the same thing. It's the most partisan vote that you take when you're in Congress.
7: So, what what else have you been working on? We hear that sh- you're working on something regarding Social Security.
6: Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I've been. Uh, this has been about a five-year project. But as you as you know, Social Security is uh, a, a wildly popular program with the American people. But it's also a program that is scheduled to. Uh, to go insolvent in 2033 or 2034, depending on numbers you agree. But either way, it's a short time away from here. And the longer you wait to, to fix the program, the more at risk uh, everyone becomes. Every single American that works contributes to it, but every single American receives something from it. Uh, therefore, every single American will have to participate in the reforms necessary to save it. And so I, since, since nobody's, done anything to fix it, I'm going to go ahead and uh, try to drop a bill that will actually uh, correct it for everybody.
7: So it's, it's wildly popular and it's also a wildly successful program and that it's, you know, researchers say by itself has done more than anything else to reduce elderly poverty over its decades of existence. So what does your solution change in social security?
6: It doesn't change a lot. I I, I follow the models uh, that have been done in the past that have reformed the the program, um, and I'm going to follow some of those models again this time. Uh, I'm not I'm not really going to go into details until I actually get this bill scored. uh uh-huh. otherwise, otherwise, I will say something out of school, and then I've got to change. It. <laughs>
1: got it. Yeah. And, but
6: but here 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 I will give you some principles that I've I've uh, applied as I've gone through this process. Um, The sooner you do this the better and the reason i say that is every day that we wait the reforms necessary cost more because the closer you get to the insolvent date the fewer days you have to build the fund back up and and so uh the, the the news for the american people related to social security and medicare is all bad news because those trust funds are scheduled to go insolvent but if we wait till tomorrow or next year or five years from now the news will be worse and since I have to deliver bad news to the American people. I would rather it be bad news rather than worse news, and I, I wanted to, uh, to do it sooner rather than later. Secondarily, I want every single American to participate in the fix because you can spread it out across the entire population, making th- these reforms less onerous on everybody and less costly for everybody, while simultaneously protecting seniors and protecting my young grandchildren.
1: It definitely makes sense to involve everyone in the process, not only for the reason that it would that it affects everybody, but it also is good to have input from everyone. Uh, but, okay, my dad has a saying, let, don't take a thing that's hard and make it complicated. I've always thought that the hard but uncomplicated way of fixing Social Security is simply to raise the income caps, make Alex Rodriguez pay more Social Security, make the New York Yankees match it, and, hey, maybe the Yankees won't pay so much for Alex Rodriguez in the future. That seems to be like a win-win for everybody, right?
6: Yeah, it, it, and it would be, and I think that that's got to be part of, the, part of the reforms that are necessary. I, but I, I, I oppose uh, philosophically, I, I actually agree with Franklin Roosevelt when the program was started, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't tax 100% of payrolls, because if you do that, then in essence you make this a welfare program and so i want to be careful about that remember that the tax is is regressive at the front end but the payout is progressive at the back end so it redirects a higher percent of income to the lowest wage earners and so you have to be careful about messing up that formula by getting the cap completely eliminated and so someplace where between where it is today and that is where it's going to end up residing in my reform.
1: Oh, that's cool. I'm not so socialist to think that we should tax 100% of it either. Well, de- well, Democrats, uh,
7: Chris Van Hollen and others, have a plan that they've had scored in which, you know, the cap right now, the, the only Social Security tax is on the first $118,000 of income. So rather than just lift the cap, they would leave it there and and, and have the cap go away but then come back. At a higher level, like say four hundred thousand, so it's it's only the the much wealthier people contributing additionally in that new plan. Do you favor having that sort of uh, setup, or or is that
6: yeah? Rather than I think what they're saying is rather than raising the percent of of the tax, but right now it's six and a quarter for the employee and employer. Right. They're saying leave that rate the same. But lift the cap up to a higher number, and and that, quite frankly, is going to have to be part of the discussion. You're not going to get away closing a, a ten trillion dollar gap simply by benefit reductions or changes. You're going to have to add, add in and, and have some revenue component to this. That's just the reality. So that's that's part of the bad news. Um,
1: just to, let me let me just add one more thing because this is uh, I'm I'm. I'm this is like one of the way that liberals think about um social security and social security reform there's tends to be kind of a disparity between uh elderly workers who have worked in the knowledge sector have worked in uh private sector jobs and elderly workers who have worked doing backbreaking physical labor and 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 liberals tend to worry that uh if you do something like tinker with the retirement age or adjust uh income levels that it couldn't it may not account for the fact that there's a certain population in the workforce that's aging out of work more quickly and is going to be more dependent on Social Security than, say, a more affluent portion of the population. Um, we've talk, we have talk all the time about maybe adding means testing to Social Security to like, eliminate people who are making high incomes. They don't get Social Security benefits. Is there a way of means testing it based on the kind of labor people do?
6: I wouldn't mean test it that way. Um, although I'm very cognizant of being careful in any reform, uh, that you must address that issue. Listen, I spent 35 years as a. I owned a commercial roofing company. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't want to have a 68-year-old person up on your building. Their, their balance isn't as good. Their 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 muscle memory is starting to weaken, and and you can. That's where you start to have serious injuries. And so I think anything that you would do that either means test it. Uh, has to be based on on wealth uh, rather than on the uh, type of work they do because you have a lot of people that are working in office jobs that are not necessarily affluent. You might have somebody working in a call center, for example, that's true. or doing data entry. They're not particularly highly affluent people, but their bodies aren't wearing out either. And, and so what we do have to recognize is that there is an element of longevity that's going on. And, and what I mean by that is, since the 1930s, we've added two years of longevity, to the American's life every single decade. And so Americans are living longer, so therefore they are in the system longer or taking more money out of the system than are, than they're actually contributing in. Uh, typically, the average uh, American will have fully received all the benefits that they've paid in uh, by the time they're 82 years old. And so many, many Americans are living way beyond that, well beyond that. My father-in-law lived till he was 97, for example. And so we have to recognize that Americans are living longer, that, that medicine and, uh, our, our medical science has taken us to a place that we live longer. So, um, some Americans who are in those, those, uh, lower stress jobs, physical jobs, will probably need to work longer before collecting social security while simultaneously leaving that early opt-in date at age 62. It's not an either or. It's, uh, it's often a both and. And I, and sometimes I think, Democrats will say, "Oh, you're just raising the age, and you're trying to make people work longer, and you're going to you're going to make it harder on these people who've got um, tough livings, uh, t- a tough uh, career." And I'm saying, "No, you don't have to do just that. You can have that early opt-in, uh, so that uh, you can protect those people. It's not one or the other; to both."
1: Well, you're retiring, so time's a wasting. I bet we should let you get to it, I
6: suppose. <laughs> well, I'm getting at it. We're, we're, I would hope in a couple of weeks we'll have something here.
1: All right, cool. Come back and let us know how it works out on the scoring. Congressman Ribble, thanks again so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the show again.
6: Hey, good to be with you guys.
1: Thanks, Congressman. And we will be right back. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here to thank all of you. For tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes as widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show, and we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened.
2: And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined by Arthur Delaney. Hi. Hi. And our favorite bank dork guest, Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform.
4: I'm waving into the microphone.
2: It's an amazing visual stunt. You guys are going to love it. I can I can hear you guys I loving guys. it right now. Uh, so, pretty big thing happened this week in in the bank dork community. Um, two regulators, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, ruled that a bunch of banks that had submitted so called living wills these sort of plans for how you would break them up without a government bailout if they ever got into trouble they ruled that these were not credible. And that, that creates all kinds of interesting things. A few embarrassments for the government, but also a lot of really interesting procedural things. Alexis, what, what does this mean?
4: So there is a part of Dodd-Frank that basically says if you are a big bank or a systemically important institution like MetLife or AIG or something like that, and you can't go through bankruptcy without messing up the rest of the economy, you're too big. So we've seen a lot of debate in this presidential election about what's the right size, how big is too big, tell me what it is. There is a sort of a size limit in Dodd-Frank, and that size is you are too big to go through bankruptcy. Now, that's not a number, but it's sort of a qualitative standard. So basically, these two regulators said that Bank of America, JPMorgan Chase, the Bank of New York, State Street, and Wells Fargo are all too big, basically, to go through bankruptcy without screwing up the rest of the economy. Wow. And they have between now and October 1st to basically fix their face. (laughs) And if they don't, (laughs) um, the Fed and the FDIC can start to force them to take on less debt and do other measures that um, would essentially change them in ways that would make them safer, in my opinion.
2: Eventually, even if they they continue to to fail to be safe and unwindable, they could they could even force divestitures. Right, so they have, they have two to opportunities
4: sure. to fix their face. They have until October 1st, and then they get to do some, I suppose, more minor changes, but then two years on, if they still haven't really fixed things, then they can actually basically break them up.
7: So this has been like the biggest debate about Wall Street reform and Dodd-Frank. Did it address the problems of Too Big to Fail that everyone knows caused the Great Recession that right. it's, everyone's still smarting from? And a lot of people said, no, it's kind of a sham, and the banks are still as big as ever. But what happened this week suggests to me that we're entering a new era where the banks can't get away with being so big.
4: I think that we are... This is an important step. This is a step that has come about because of a lot of political pressure. Uh, You probably remember, but there was a time before the Senate Banking Committee where Cherry Allen appeared and Elizabeth Warren like reamed her out over the living. This this is called the living wills process, right? Basically show me how you can go bankrupt. And she was just like, why don't we know anything about this process? You're telling me there are thousands of pages of this? I can only read 30. What the hell is going on? And it was a thing of beauty. So a lot of political pressure has gotten us to this point. I think that Dodd-Frank doesn't go far enough. I think we need a 21st century Glass-Steagall Act. I think there are a lot of other reforms that need to happen. But Dodd-Frank also is very powerful. And if the regulators would obey it, and I think in my opinion, up until now, they weren't obeying it. They were giving, the, they would basically, like the banks would come and they'd say, here's my plan for how I'll go bankrupt safely. And the regulators would go, sp, Here's here's the answers. Here's how you pass the test. And then they went back and they were like, here, we try it again. And they're like, ah, here's how you... And now finally they're saying, no, you failed the test. Like, you, you, you messed up. This isn't credible. Fix it between now and October 1st. But I don't think it would be fair to say that this is a total panacea. So I think it's both. I think Dodd-Frank... Uh, directs the regulators to break up banks if they're too risky. Uh, the question is, it's sort of this personnel is policy question. Do, are the people at the Fed and the FDIC, are are they actually going to do this come October 1st? And we need to make sure that they do. Right.
2: I mean, they could do something like, say, just just paper over this and say, oh, yeah, it was fine. Never mind. You don't have to do anything. Um, and there would be very little that the public could do to to check that, that conclusion and determine whether it was accurate or not. Um, but I want to take the opportunity here. To gloat, because I like (laughs) gloating. Um, You do. Yeah. So this presidential election in particular, there's been a lot of discussion about whether too big to fail even matters. And particularly, even though Hillary Clinton herself has said that she would break up big big banks if she determined that they were too big to fail, um, a lot of her supporters have been questioning whether too big to fail even matters, particularly Paul Krugman. And I feel like this particular ruling... From the Fed and the FDIC shows that you know the people who are talking, Krugman included, about how important it is that we regulate across the financial system, how important it is that we regulate these big banks. You know, this is one of the rules that is associated with regulating these big banks, which is if you can't be unwound safely, we can take steps that will eventually break you up. Uh, And I think that's I think it's kind of important because people are allowed to support whoever they want in the presidential election, and there are a lot of reasons why you know you might you might want to support Hillary Clinton, but. The fact, the fact is, it's just a bald fact, that too big to fail is a major part, a major problem, and it's something that does need to be addressed. And I think the fact that regulators are taking steps here makes that perfectly clear, particularly Because these regulators have been quite reluctant to do anything about this for several years now.
4: Well, and if nothing else, it shows that the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, whose day job it is to oversee the banks, that is what they do day in and day out, think that the big banks, or at least these five banks, are a problem. And so if Paul Krugman continues to argue that they're not a problem, he needs to take it up with the FDIC and the Fed because they very clearly disagree with him.
2: Paul Krugman's kind of like a guy playing a bar being like, hey, man, you know. You you full-time musicians don't know what's up.
7: I love you, Paul. So, <laughs> this is I usually do too. <laughs> this is the first time that this regulation has done this. It's been in effect since just 2 years ago, right?
2: They they the banks were first they first filed 2 years ago, which is what I mean when I say they've been re- the regulators have been reluctant to take action. So, yeah. 20 August 2014, the FDIC said, "11 banks, you're you're your living wills are not credible. The Fed was a little more mealy-mouthed about it. Um, but almost
7: but, all regulations move slower than most policy things that are in the news.
2: But let's also remember, you know, Dodd-Frank passed in 2010. Yeah. The, the whole You you could have started thinking about, okay, we know this living will provision is in there. There's no reason why it should take you two years to get this together. So
7: now if these banks, that the four that were deemed by, the five that were deemed by two regulators to be too big to fail without a plausible plan to address it. If they remain, like, out of bounds, it, they're on a path to being broken up by the government?
4: They are. Um, wow. So October 1st, they can do more minor things, like saying you can't have as much debt. You need to raise your capital standards. Um and then they have a two-year time period where if they still don't fix it, they can break them up. They can force what's called a divestiture, but you can just think of it as breaking them up. They're going to have to sell off part of their business line.
7: I remember Republicans used to attack Dodd-Frank and probably still do as—
4: They did today, actually. Right. Or this week, I should say. <laughs> no,
7: they've said that this is actually a more bailouts. And uh, I actually didn't know if that was something that is still being said because it, it seemed untrue. Yeah. But, but what is the Republican response to this regulation? So,
4: well, so there's two parts to this and Dodd-Frank. There's what I call the preventative medicine, and this is the preventative medicine part, right? If you are too big to go through bankruptcy without hurting the economy, we get to break you up. Um, and then there's the emergency room, which is if that preventative medicine doesn't work, if you continue to eat chips secretly and, I don't know, whatever you do that would, would cause you great harm to <laughs> need to go to the mm-hmm. ER, Um Then there's something called the Orderly Liquidation Authority, which is where the FDIC can take over the bank, sell off chunks of its uh, assets. And if that's not enough, all of the other banks have to like pay in money to help sort of resolve this.
7: What medical procedure is this, like a liposuction?
4: (laughs) I don't know. What's a medical procedure where other people have to pay for your, well, that's the ER, right? I guess other (laughs) people have to pay for your (laughs) medical procedure if if you don't have health insurance. Um, And so the Republicans have always said that that orderly liquidation authority, the ER for banks was actually a big fat bailout because after all the banks pay in, if there isn't enough money left over the treasury, can loan them money for five years, which they have to pay them back. Um, And they also like to say that this other thing that we talked about, I think, last show, the systemically important financial institution. So if you're MetLife and AIG and you get that stamp, that's an enshrinement of too big to fail and a promise that we will bail you out, when actually it seems like every company is totally desperate to not be deemed a systemically important financial institution. They sued to have it overturned. So the Republican talking points on this are, are basically nonsense, garbage, in in my opinion. But um, I think that they basically want nothing. They want no emergency room. They want no rules. Um, they just I, I want the say wild this. west.
2: You know. The term systemically important financial institution.
4: Sounds fancy.
2: It's kind of insulting. What they mean are these, these firms are dangerous and they call them important instead, like like they really need a pat on the back or they're going to they're gonna go home and cry. I feel like that's kind of insulting. But other than that, I think Alexis is right. Uh, and we're going to have to leave it there. Alexis, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Arthur. Bye. miss you already, buddy. And we'll be right back.
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble, Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform, progressive House candidate Zephyr Teachout, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Webber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store, and while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send us an email at So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.